Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith from his name's sake. And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Hope everyone is doing well. I wanted to start today's message a little differently than usual today. Uh, we've been reading hard things in the news and um, to see that times are rough, being in the middle of a pandemic and all that stuff. So I want to start off this morning a little more lighthearted, a little little, little laughter, a little um, bit, a bit of those jokes that make people go, like they groan and be like, oh, but that's still funny. So here's, here's my attempt at that. Number one question to ask you. Who is the fastest runner in the Bible? Anybody? It was Adam, because he was first in the human race. <laughs> who, was the greatest, who was the greatest financier in the Bible? Solomon, that's a good guess. But actually it was Noah, because he floated his stock while everybody else was in liquidation. All right, here's my favorite one. Here's my favorite one, okay? What kind of man was Boaz before he got married? He was ruthless. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. You're welcome. Guys, today we're starting a new series in the book of Romans. And guys, we're going to be in this rich and deep book for the next 13 weeks. My people, I'm, I'm so excited to be in this book with all of you. It's so much to this. And I hope and pray that God draws us closer to him during our time together. So why am I excited about the book of Romans? For one thing, the greatest Christian leaders for the last 2,000 years have maintained that Romans is one of the most important theological books ever written. 
St. Augustine said that in Romans, all shadows of his doubt were dispelled. John Calvin spoke of Romans as his entrance to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Martin Luther said that it was the most important piece of the New Testament and said that it was impossible to read, study, ponder, or meditate on it too much. He called, he called its central premise of Romans justification by faith alone, the doctrine on which the church rises or falls, which I don't necessarily agree with Martin Luther as being this central premise or the doctrine on which the church rises or falls. But you see how important these great people of faith considered this book. Many refer to Romans as kind of Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work. Now, one thing I do want to say is that before, uh, before I dive into this so much, I want you guys to know that the book itself, the letter itself, the epistle itself of Romans, isn't enough on its own. I know I've heard people say that all, all you need is the book of Romans. You just need like one gospel and the book of Romans and you're good to go. That's not true. No one epistle is enough by itself. You need all the epistles. As a matter of fact, the epistles are not good enough by itself. You need the whole New Testament. The New Testament is not good enough by itself. You need the New Testament and the Old Testament. We need all of Scripture. We at Waypoint Church are passionate and we believe strongly in all of Scripture as God's written word and written revelation to us. So we need all of it. In Romans, Paul works through some of the most important and most pressing questions kind of considered by human people and human race. And he does it with meticulous logic. He shows that the gospel is the only answer to our questions and the only real solution to our problems. As a matter of fact, his logic is so meticulous that for the first 100 or so years of Harvard Law School, the first year students were required to work, through, work their way through the book of Romans because of the careful way Paul built his argument. So let's dive into this text. And it starts off with Paul's greeting, which were typical for letters back then. Typically, most letters, ancient Aries, started off a similar way. Paul, in particular, had a habit of writing this way. And before we get into this, I want to mention that this is the longest greeting of all of the Paul's letters. 93 words of greeting he brings in this epistle to the Romans. But one thing I want you to see, that even in these first seven verses, where Paul is just basically saying, I'm Paul, and I'm sending this letter to you, you notice how everything in his greeting surrounds and is infused with the gospel. In the very first word of the greetings is this letter. Paul's already talking about the gospel of grace. And then you see that that's his intentionality. The whole letter that Paul is writing to the Romans is all about the gospel. So in this first part of Romans, we're going to see who the writer Paul is. We'll see what message he is conveying and what is his mission. So in verse 1, Paul opens up by introducing himself to these Roman Christians, telling them what his ministry position is, telling them what his authority is in the ministry, and telling them his own purpose in it. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So let's start with Paul. Who was Paul? Paul was a former Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a sect of Judaism, hyper-devoted to the law. These are ones who are just like really intent. They're, they're all about the law and the nuances of following the law. And this is a quick random plug here, but if there's, a, there's a TV show called, a, a series called The Chosen. And The Chosen is this awesome kind of entrance into looking at the, the time of the ancient Near East, looking into the biblical times, and seeing it played out in a cool, kind of artistic way. And I love it. It's a really cool thing. You should check it out. Um, I'm, being, I'm actually endorsed by The Chosen. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not, I have no sponsorship from them. But it's really good. You guys should check it out. And in Philippians, Paul tells us that he was not just any Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, he was esteemed. He was well thought of by his community. He was looked well upon. He was so good at following the law that he, other law followers said he was better at following the law than them. He had trained under Gamaliel. 
was one of the most sought after teachers of his day. It's like having Yoda as your teacher, uh, uh, Mr. Miyagi, or if you're like into like writing pop songs or Taylor Swift. You know, it's just these, these famous, somebody who would be like, it's immediately you're respected because that person's your teacher. And for sure, Paul would have had most, if not all, the Hebrew scriptures memorized. I mean, this is what Pharisees and Pharisees, they memorized chunks and large amounts of the Old Testament. He, he would most likely be proficient in multiple languages. And he was zealous, not just for keeping the laws, not just for knowing the laws, but for keeping them. In Philippians, Paul says that if anybody thought they were keeping the law, he was doing it better. He said he was good at being good. He was so zealous, in fact, that he devoted himself to destroying Christians early on. Now, we, we know that as a bad thing, but back then, Paul thought that he was doing the good thing. He thought Christians were the enemies of God, so he was zealous about even willing to kill them for his desire to be a Pharisee. But this zealot, this Pharisee of Pharisees, this zealot of zealots, had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ and became a new man. He became the Paul that wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. This transformed man who experienced the power of the gospel is the one writing this intro words about the gospel. That was a little bit of who Paul is. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. He says three things in this little first verse. He says first that he's a servant of the Messiah. Now, for most of you, you're like, wait, 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 I don't, I, don't, I don't see that. It doesn't say servant of the Messiah. It says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, right? A servant of Christ Jesus, it says. And you're like, well, it doesn't say Messiah. Well, let me explain this. I know I've said this a bunch of times. I'm going to say this again. Je- Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Literally, it's a translation of the word Messiah, meaning anointed one. And so he's saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's saying he's a servant to the Messiah, Christ Jesus. So he's making bold proclamation. He's saying Jesus is the Messiah and I am his servant. So Paul introduces himself to the Romans as a servant. Now this is an important balancing truth to the next statement that he's about to, to say. Because the very next thing he's going to say is that he's not only a servant of Christ, but he's also an apostle. That is, God himself, actually Paul could actually say the Lord Jesus himself, visibly and audibly met with him and called him not only to salvation, but also service as an apostle. Do you guys remember when Paul was encountered on the way to Damascus by the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul was going to go, he's on his way to persecute Christians, he was celebrating Stephen's death, and he was on his way to persecute more Christians. But not only that was he able to do that, but he has actually encountered Jesus right there on the road. He gets struck blind. The Lord humbles him, brings him to repentance, converts him. But not only that, Jesus actually spoke to all the other Christians that were gathered around him. who They were scared because this guy was named Saul of Tarsus and being welcomed to the Christian community. They were, they were confused and they were scared. And then the Lord himself said, not only should you accept this guy, but he's actually going to suffer for my sake. From the very beginning of his conversion, Paul was set apart, called by Jesus himself to be an authoritative messenger and representative of God. And Paul says, I am a servant of Christ. I'm not here to lord it over you. And I love the name. Even the name Paul means little. He goes from Saul, which I don't know if you guys, who else in the Bible is named Saul? King Saul, the first king of Israel. He goes from a kingly name, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a kingly name, to be then given the name Paul, which literally means little. He says, I'm now a lowly Paul. I'm little. I'm a servant of Christ. But at the same time, this servant carries this authoritative voice. He says, I'm a servant. I'm lowly. But I'm an apostle. 
Paul gives us an inkling of what that means in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. In this passage, he gives compliments to the Thessalonian Christians. He says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human words, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Paul is saying to Thessalonians, I want to thank God for you, that when you heard me proclaim the truth, you understood that my words were not just men's words, They weren't just my opinion, my thoughts, my reflections, my experience. It was God's very word. And you accepted it for what it is. And the Apostle Paul is saying here to the Roman Christians that he is an authoritative messenger of God. And he goes on to say he's a man wholly devoted to proclaiming the good news set apart for the gospel. And you need to understand the radical implications for what Paul is saying, even in this first sentence. Not only for us, us, but not only for the Roman Christians who heard this 2,000 years ago, but for us today. We need to understand the radical truth claims that Paul is making here and the radical authority claim of the gospel. Because here's the deal, guys. We live in a day and age where people are uncomfortable with authority and truth. I've heard it said that if you ever run into anybody who believes in truth with a capital T, you run in the opposite direction as fast as you can. You see, the world is very uncomfortable with absolute truth claims because the world is afraid that it's going to restrict its freedom to do as it pleases. Most people in this world, in this culture, believe in relativity. They, they want to say what's true for you, not what, what's true with a capital T. But let me tell you something. Authority is the only thing that will save you from authoritarianism. It's only belief in the transcendent truth that does not change, that saves you from the tyranny of the 50% plus one majority, or the will of popular thought. Here's what I mean by that. If a man tolerates you only because he believes that there is no truth, or that what truth exists is relative, he can change his mind tomorrow. But if a man tolerates you on transcendent principles that cannot change, you have a relationship that which you can have, which can have some endurance to it. In other words, this is idea is right now, if society says it is wrong and evil to kill somebody because you're more powerful than that person, and then that's what's true for the society at this moment. But the very next moment, society changes, and now it says, now society says it. Oh well, if you're more powerful, just go ahead and kill that person. It's no big deal. And that changes at the whim of society and culture. But if there's transcendent truth, if there's truth that says do not kill because that person is made in the image of God, then there's transcendent thing that creates authority over the other thing. Does that make sense? This way we're not at the whim of whatever has popular thought or popular culture. We're at the whim of, we're at the, the mercy and authority of transcendent truth. So Paul comes with truth and authority. And can I tell you something? True truth and authority is actually freeing. And it's so important for us to face up to these authority claims. Paul was wanting us to see the consequences of the truth that he presses. When he says, I'm an apostle and I've got a message from God for you, he wants you to understand that this message has consequences for your whole life, for the way you think, for the way you live, and for the place that you will spend eternity. Paul is claiming to address us directly on behalf of God. And this is the good news of God. And my friends, it's vital for us to face up to that. We must embrace the gospel, not because we think it's good for us, because, but because it is true. And if it's not true, guys, let me tell you something. If it's not true, it is not good. And we live in a day and age as we're not comfortable with truth. We're much more comfortable with what works for me, works for you, works for me, should work for me, doesn't have to work for you. But that's not how Paul presents the gospel. He doesn't present it as one of many options. He presents it as the only way and the only truth that God relates to sinners. And it's not popular what I'm saying when we live in this 
relativistic age. But he's saying there's only one way, one gospel, one hope, one Lord. And so this message that Paul is saying is this is truth. And this message is what made Paul have such confidence to do what he did. We see the man now, let's look at the message. Of what, why is Paul willing to go around the world to places he's not welcome, the people he's never met, enduring unspeakable hardships? It's because he believes in this message that he's sharing. And this is what the message he's sharing is. It says, verse 2 on, it says, The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who the, the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that come from faith for his name's sake. Paul says in verse 2, this is why I'm driven, first of all, that this was promised beforehand through all the prophets. Paul's most compelling evidence for him to belief in Jesus and the, and the universality of this message is that he knew the Old Testament. He knew the Bible. And he knew that this prophecy spoke of a coming Messiah that would be a blessing to the nations, that would redeem his people. And once he saw and his eyes were made aware and awakened to the reality of Jesus Christ as this Messiah, it compelled him. This message was powerful for him. And it was a whole message. Guys, can you hear me very clearly? That the people, the gospel isn't just a message of the cross and the resurrection. It is the whole story of God. Paul paints the picture of the rest of Romans. You see how Paul paints the picture of a creating God who is a pursuing God, pursues his people, gives them a promise, intercedes on their behalf, rescues them, redeems them, and is recreating them. Paul paints a big picture of the gospel. Because the good news is that our creator God from the very beginning had a plan for us, gave us a promise and pursued us and called us to be his people and he to be our God. And he made a way for that to happen. Luke 24, after the crucifixion, a few of Jesus' disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus. They were discouraged. And they were like, oh man, our, my, our teacher is gone. And they're walking, all of a sudden Jesus is there with them. And they don't recognize Jesus, which is so weird to me. I'm like, how do you not recognize Jesus? Was he wearing a mask? He says, I don't know what's going on. But they don't recognize Jesus, right? And they don't recognize him. And Jesus is telling them, like, hey, what's it say about Scripture, about the Messiah? And Jesus goes back and he teaches them from the very beginning, all throughout, from the book of Genesis all the way on. And guys, those of you who've been with us when we started preaching through the Pentateuch and you've been in the Bible study reading plan, you see that the, the, the 30 different authors over a space of 1,500 years had consistently told one story. And that was a story that pointed to Jesus. It's incredible to see. That the gospel message is so much bigger than just this one moment in history. The gospel message is all of it. And if you don't know that, my people, let me just tell you, one of the favorite books that I, I want you to read is a child's book, children's book. It's called the Storybook Bible. You know, and so if, if you know of anybody who's just kind of newly becoming a Christian, newly discovering the New Old Testament and New Testament, go ahead and give them that book. And don't say, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. I know it's a kid's book, but it was meaningful to me. So go ahead. As I was reading to my kids, I'm like, oh, this is good. And I went to seminary, so I'm, like, I'm telling you, this is good, Right? It all points to Jesus, and this is all the gospel. The good news is not just Jesus in our place. That's great news. That's phenomenal news. But that's part of the good news that God is a creating God, loving God, rescuing God, saving God, promise-keeping God, recreating God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And his kingdom is advancing, and it will be one day consummated.
And the good news is that there's also resurrection of the dead in verse 4. This is the other element of the message put forth by Paul. He's saying that there was a coming Messiah and that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. He's sharing that his message is the message of the gospel. Here in the introduction, Paul is also saying that this Messiah died for the sins of man is also resurrected. Oh, what power. Oh, what incredible. The central power source of the message that compels Paul to the ends of the earth is that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then all hope and power is real. So then Paul need not fear death and sin. There's a song that we sing off in the way Paul George that goes, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. That song moves me every single time. I have a pastor friend of mine. He's an older pastor. He's a friend of mine. And his wife developed, I don't know if it's called, like, I don't know what exactly the medical leave is, dementia slash Alzheimer's, or if it's both or one or the other. I don't know which one it is. But they're going through some really hard times. I would talk to him, and he'd tell me about how sometimes she wouldn't, he wouldn't, she wouldn't recognize him. Sometimes she'd even get angry to the point of, what are you doing? Who are you? And he'd still lovingly take care of her and care for her. And he'd tell me how hard it was. But every single time I talked to him, even though how difficult it may be, there was always this underlying foundation of hope and joy and happiness. So one day as he's sharing with me how hard it's been, and I, I just talked to him, I said, hey, so what's, how, how, do you, I mean, how do I feel that? Why do I, when I talk to you about this, why do I still feel this hope you have? This, this kind of like, it's okay, everything's good mentality. And he looked at me and he said, he said, because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive, this is not the end of her story. Because Jesus is alive, this is not how we finish. Because Jesus is alive, dementia and Alzheimer's doesn't win. Paul continues, verse 5, through him we received grace. Paul saw the message of grace as a distinguishing characteristic of this good news. Guys, there are many that say all religions basically teach the same thing. But it's not true. I'd say pretty much most religions in the world works off this premise. I obey, therefore I am accepted. But Christianity works off the opposite. It says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Grace is fundamental to the message that Paul teaches. And so why does Paul, why does this gospel, why does this message compel Paul and in turn us to carry it around the world? And there are three reasons he alludes to here, so I want to talk about them. One is, how do you receive this kind of grace and keep it to yourself? I mean, if you were amongst a group of starving people but found an unlimited food source, how, would you, how could you keep that to yourself? If there were people dying of starvation you had the means to feed them, wouldn't you? How could you not? To those who've been given much grace, how could you not see that I didn't deserve this, I need to give this away? Second, we see that God's commanded this to happen. Verse 5, it says, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Do you guys understand that God's declared Jesus is Lord and commanded all people everywhere to submit to him? And if we're not obeying... If we call to obey because we're, we've been saved, not because we earned salvation, but we've been saved, then we're called to obey. And if we call Jesus as Lord, if you believe Jesus is Lord, then you better, you, you need to be doing what he says. Because you can't say Jesus is Lord and not do what he says. Because then you're really not saying Jesus is Lord. Does that make sense? I mean, it's kind of pointless to say, oh, I mean, that's my boss and that's my king, but I don't ever really do what he says. He's not your boss and king then. 
Are you with me? And what Jesus is saying is that we're called to bring about the obedience of faith. We're called to spread the news. We're supposed to do the great commission. We're supposed to make disciples of all nations. This message itself compels us to share. And one last other reason Paul alludes to is verse 5. For the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. The name of Jesus is worthy to be worshipped among the nations. It's not just compassion. It's not just compassion for the starving people that compels us. It's not just compassion for the lost that compels us. But it's also our desire to bring forth the glory of the name of Jesus. To see his name lifted eye. We want the world to recognize him for who he is. Guys, it's not just the reason. That I don't want people to, to look at this beautiful painting because I want them to enjoy the painting. Yes, I want them to enjoy it. I don't want to deprive people from the beauty of a painting. But I also want them to say, glory in that painting, to give praise to that painting, because that painting is worthy of it. Does that make sense? Guys, when I look at the world and say, yes, my heart breaks to them. I want you to know Jesus so desperately, but just as much so, you need to know that it's the name of Jesus that deserves all glory and praise. We need to lift his name up. I was one day in Malaysia and I went to this incredible mosque and it was huge and it was beautiful. And I went there, there were, there were people there, mainly tourists at the time, there weren't really anybody worshipping there. But I got a picture of what it would be like. They painted a picture of people in, on their knees and worshipping and praising and singing and worshipping. And my heart broke because all these people were bowing in worship but not to the one who was worthy. And that broke my heart because the one who was worthy, not just for those people because they were lost, but the name of my Jesus, my King, is worthy that every knee should bow and every tongue needs to confess because Jesus is that worthy. See, we looked at who Paul is and we're seeing his message. Let's talk about what Paul's mission is. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. I love this starts off where he says, I am not ashamed. Why did Paul feel the need to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? I mean, if anybody, nobody's going to accuse Paul of being ashamed of the gospel, right? Why did he feel that need to say that? I feel like Paul is indicating that some people are going to be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. He's anticipating objections to sharing of the gospel, Right? And what is it about the gospel that tempts people to feel this word ashamed? Tim Keller has four things, four reasons modern Christians uh, feel ashamed of the gospel. And this is from his book, Romans for You. And it says this, number one, first it tells us that we're spiritual failures. The only way to be saved is through a free gift. This offends the moral and the religious people who think their decency gives them an advantage over the less moral. So you're ashamed because it's a free gift, and you, none of what you did earned it. Two, it tells us that we're so wicked that only the death of Jesus could save us. This offends the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity, or that we just need to get into our good self, or our divine self, or reach into our inner beauty, or inner self. Third, it teaches us that, the, that all so-called good, sincere people will not automatically make it into heaven. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way. It says that God is the only way who can provide salvation, and if you're going to receive it, you have to do it his way. Fourth, lastly, this gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' serving and suffering, and we should expect the same in following him. This offends people who want salvation to be an easy life, a comfortable way, who wants that fire insurance just added on to their normal lives, nice and comfortable. To be not ashamed of it means you recognize that these 
issues stand in our way and we proclaim it faithfully anyway. Paul says, I know this message offends, but I'm not ashamed of it because I know it alone contains the power of new life. Paul says, you might not like this message, but it's the only one that connects you to the power of God. So I'm not ashamed of it. But even more, the opposite of shame, Paul says, I am eager. Paul says, I've, I've felt this power in my life, and I know it's the only hope of salvation, so I want to get it to you. I am eager. Can I tell you people that people who have experienced the transforming power of Christ in their lives become eager to share it with others? I see that over and over and over again. I have a friend of mine who became a Christian after running away for so long that he couldn't stop sharing about Jesus. We used to go out random places together. We used to go to like a random golf course and the, the guy started the tee box, the ranger, and he'd be like sharing the gospel. We're like, yo, you won't believe what Jesus did in my life. We'd go to a place at a restaurant. He'd be like, this is my pastor. You should, you should, you should ask him about Jesus. And I'd be like, uh, okay. And, you know, we, he would just would not stop talking to everybody about Jesus. Now, mind you, he was also the most extroverted person I've ever met. He could talk to a tree for an hour and it would be entertaining to him. Right? He, was just, he just loved talking. But that could, that, this man could not stop sharing. But I have another friend of mine who was so introverted, quiet and private. And even though, when I first met him, even though he was a white guy, I thought he didn't speak English. Right? He was just such a quiet guy. After being transformed by Jesus, he became the most eloquent speaker and sharer of all time. Nope. That's not what happened. He still was introverted. He was still quiet. He was still shy. But he started living for the Lord. He was eager in his own way. One's eagerness isn't based on how many people you share with. Do you hear me? One's eagerness is based on how faithful a person is with the way God has gifted and called them and created them to be, to share. We're all called to share the gospel in light of the way God made us, where he's placed us, and what he's called us to do. Do you hear that? The opposite of being ashamed of the gospel is, is not to be proud of being a Christian, but it's an eagerness to do what God's called you faithfully to do. To live for Christ. To share with eagerness the way he's made you to share. And for some, like my friend, the first friend, that means, man, he's just going to talk to every waiter, waitress, neighbor, worker in the world. And that's great because he was made that way. God called him to do it that way. But for some, it's going to be those deep, long conversations with those few people that God placed in their lives uniquely and shapely. That's going to lead to profound, beautiful impact and change. For some, it's going to be shared in different ways. Some it's going to be writing. Some it's going to be speaking. But all it is is that you're eager to do what God's faithfully called you to do. Even more so, verse 14 says, I am obligated. I am obligated. The word here means debtor. But how in the world is Paul debted, indebted and obligated to people to share to them if he's never even met them? How is he a debtor to other people? Well, let's look at it this way. Let's say at the church, somebody says, hey, church, I'm going to give you a million dollars to feed the hungry. And I'm going to be like, sweet. But what would it be like? What would people think if the church said, you know what? I'm going to stash that money, collect some of the interest. You know, that's going to be pretty good. I'm, just going to, I'm not going to do what the, I'll give them the money to do. No, that's not the church's money. It was given to the church in trust to give to the hungry. And the church owes it to others to share it. We are indebted to share it. It was the very reason it was given to you. Guys, that's what God tells us about the gospel message. You are no more worthy of it than anyone else in the world. But God blessed you, gave it to you, entrusted you with the privilege of hearing the gospel so you have the responsibility of sharing it and spreading it to those around you. It was entrusted into your care. 
So you are indebted to others. And to not do so would be stealing. My people, are you ashamed of the gospel? Or are you eager to share? Willing to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to others? Are you willing to to live out the way God's uniquely gifted you, shaped you, molded you? To be faithful to where he's called you and placed you? And the experience he's given you? To share the gospel, the good news of this all beautiful story, this creating God who made a way for sinful people, who he pursued and brought into covenant relationship with as a group of people, as a community. He guided, showed the way to, provided an ultimate means of entering into beautiful relationship, conquered sin and death for, redeemed, and his call to eternal covenant, beautiful relationship for. And he's recreating. Paul, in his intro to this great book of Romans, is saying that the gospel message is so good. It's so good. It's so big. It's so wonderful. It has to be shared. So before we dive into this beautiful book for the rest of our series, may we remember that this book is not just meant for us to grow, but it's meant for us to be shared. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kind of the words of Paul that you gave authoritatively in a powerful way. God, that the good news is that you, creator God, for some reason decided to build a relationship with us sinful people and you provided a way for us. God, through the work of Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, you made a way for us. So we thank you for the good news. God, we thank you for your love. And may we share it with others in Jesus' name. Amen. Waypoint Church, we're going to practice communion. And I know communion is different now than it's been in the past. And even though communion is a a corporate body, it's a feast that we partake in together as as a church local body, as a family. And it feels weird now because you guys are on screen or you're at your own homes and we're not together. But here's a cool thing. Here's a powerful thing. That the Holy Spirit is the power that knits us together. Even when we partake in communion, it's the Holy Spirit that allows this means of grace to happen for us. So it's the very Holy Spirit then as knitting us together as a family, as we partake in communion now together. And as we take in communion, hopefully you have the, the elements before you. And as we take in communion, what we're doing is we're partaking in the body that was broken for us. This body that was intentionally given for us as he humbled himself to death upon a cross. So we can know what a life of love and fulfillment of the law And we can know that Jesus died in our place. And he took the the, the body, he took the cup, and this is the blood that was shed for us. What makes us clean, what makes us white as snow was a sacrifice of a pure lamb. And in this whole beautiful story of the gospel fits in so many different ways, so many elements, so many nuances. And as we see this expressed in communion, we profess and thank God for all of them. As we partake in it together, we receive the good news of the gospel over and over again for ourselves. So I invite you, church, by the power of the Spirit, we partake in communion together with me. Let us pray. 
God, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. God, that you're pursuing love, sent him to die as a ransom for many. But not only as a ransom for many, but as fulfillment of the law, as the promised Messiah. God, that calls your people together and to you. We thank you as we celebrate communion. We thank you for his work. We love you. We praise you. And we commit ourselves to the work of kingdom advancement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.